Welcome to the Behind the Drapes podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Taif Mukdomi. I first met Taif when I was interviewing at residency for Brown University during one of the pre-interview dinners. Taif was the type of guy who filled up a room with energy and was really selling the program. He was a chief resident for the first graduating class and then after graduating, went on to Wheel Cornell in New York City to complete his chronic pain fellowship. Since completing his fellowship, he's now planning on opening up a practice with his brother in Columbus, Ohio. Taif was very involved in research during his time in residency, putting out over 45 publications, and also won multiple awards throughout his time, one of them being the ASRA Resident of the Year in 2021. Taif is an awesome guy to talk to, very energetic, and really shows all the different ways that you can use anesthesiology to help mold the type of career that you want. I'm excited to talk to him about where his career is going and what he's been up to recently. So let's take a look at what's going on behind the drapes with Taif. How'd I do? Nice, man. That's great. Perfect. All right. So I think where I want to jump off our conversation from um, is basically, I think being part of the first graduating class of Rhode Island Hospital was a pretty big deal. And I think the further away we get from that point, the less we're going to remember about those early stages of the program. Um, so can you kind of take us through your transitional year and what it was like interviewing with Rhode Island Hospital and even like even like when I interviewed there, I remembered sort of the bare bones that we had there. And I'm sure it was even different when you interviewed, but kind of paint a picture of what that process was like for you. Yeah. So um, my transitional year, first of all, was out in uh, Riverside, California. It was at uh, Riverside Community Hospital, University of California, Riverside. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to be in a class that was super engaging, had a program director there, Dr. Jason on, who was super engaging and very supportive. And uh, really just set the foundation for my training as a physician. And, uh, you know, I can't give uh, RCH enough credit, but, um, you know, it really did start uh, my trajectory as a physician. And, uh, um, you know, going with that type of energy um, when applying across the country um, amongst programs, you know, I was looking for a similar type of energy. Um, you know, a lot of programs that were established and already um, kind of knew what they were looking for. Um, you you basically had to fit in their mold. Viewed at Rhode Island Hospital, you know, they really didn't know what they were looking for. Um, I know they all came from prestigious institutions, but um, you know, they were just trying to get their first class, and uh, you know. I didn't really appreciate that at the time, um, but after going through the years uh, there through training, you could really see what was happening behind the doors, behind the scenes, and uh, um, you know, you really learned a lot about this whole process and um, the program um, that you're a part of. And for me, like spending the time at Brown, um, the biggest thing that appealed to me was just the opportunity to do whatever and everything you wanted. So it was a great place that if you knew what you were going to do um, or what you wanted to do, they would give you the tools to succeed. Um, a lot of other places, they were like, this is what we do. We either turn out generalists, we turn out cardio, cardiothoracic anesthesiologists, we turn out pain physicians, uh, regional anesthesia, OB, things like that. Um, but Brown is a place where you kind of were like, hey, this is what I want to do. And they tried to help you know, meet those goals or meet those, um, you know, requirements that you were looking for, for a program. So, um, early on, I think we really got a, uh, you know, a really good deal, <laughs> uh, being the first class over there. 
what kind of expectations for your career did you like bring into residency and like how did that shape your residency experience? So first and foremost, I wanted to be a proficient anesthesiologist. I wanted to be able to handle anything that came my way. Um, and then on top of that, just, you know, use that time to achieve all these other things that you can get out of um, academic medicine or training, whether that's research, um, opportunities to do away rotations, um, and then pursue fellowship and career goals. Um, and, you know, a lot of people at that time were thinking, oh, this might be a risk. This is a new program. But like, you know, if you looked at the faculty, they were there to succeed. And um, you just had to trust that. And, you know, it's funny, um, anesthesiology is such a risk averse specialty. You calculate the risk and you mitigate as much as possible and you try to minimize that as much as possible. But, um, you know, when it comes to, you know, this program at the start and just life in general, you know, if you're not taking risks, you're not going to be, you know, succeeding far and beyond your peers. Um, so just keeping that in mind as you continue to go on, you know, that was a big thing for me. I was willing to take risks. Um, and Brown really did a good job of, you know, you know, really coming in and delivering on everything that it was talking about. And then also just supporting, um, you know, the applicants and the new residents in their program. So it's great. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you hit on. I just want to highlight the fact that when you take risks, especially in like a risk adverse like specialty, you can find a lot of reward that you would have not ultimately gotten to. Like, for example, all this stuff that I'm doing on top of residency is a bit of a risk, but like you never know where you're going to find yourself. Um, and there's a bunch of supportive people in our department who sort of push you in that direction or allow you the autonomy to kind of play around with however you want to tailor your career. Are there certain people at Brown that you remember like during your interview or even throughout your three years here that were mentors or really helped guide your sort of dream for your future? Yeah. So, you know, Dr. Delavera was, you know, at, at the beginning, a little intimidating. <laughs> um, but I think once you uh, delivered what he was looking for, uh, you know, he really did take it upon himself to help deliver on your goals and what you needed. Um, I could honestly say I learned, um, you know, a little bit of everything from everyone around, um, as faculty. And I don't know if it was because we were a new program and everyone was willing to, you know, teach and give you their two cents. And <laughs> they haven't been like, you know, weathered down by the years and years of residents or fellows and things like that, where it feels like a broken record. But, um, you know, I think we really lucked out with that because, these were all pearls that were new to everyone and the program was new to everyone. Everyone was just trying to figure it out, whether it was the trainees and residents ourselves or even the administration and faculty. So um, I think it was just an exciting time. And, um, you know, like you said, over the years, you tend to, you're getting away from it and it may just become more of the normal now or whatever the new normal is. So. And I feel like when we were first starting off as a residency program, at least when it was being sold to me, there's no fellows. Um, the breadth of different types of cases is pretty wide. And so probably as a CA1, you found yourself in like really sick cases or really complex cases, probably cases that you didn't quite feel ready for as a CA1. Um, do you remember 
it doesn't have to be that year, but any like specific scenario where you're like, this is a wild case and I can't believe I'm doing this. And do you remember like who your attending was and kind of the support you had? Because I think that's probably the best balance that we provide is this autonomy as well as support of getting through these complex cases. Yeah. So, you know, I, <laughs> I think every day I was on edge CA one year, like I was spending time reading the night before prepping for my cases, even while in the cases, you know, I, my heart rate was probably running high and trying to, you know, soak in all the information from the monitors um, while still making sure the patient's safe. And then also just doing everything that your attendings want you to do before they even think about it. um, Just so then you're in good standing with everyone and everything happening around you. So, um, you know, one of the things that tend to strike out to me is just, um, you know, I was working with Lee Wesner on one of these cases and, uh, you know, he's just exuding this confidence during the entire case. And that was comforting, you know, and we got into a difficult airway situation and, you know, it was tough. And he ended up coming in there last, last second pinch hitting and getting the tube in it was just effortless on his end. Um, and being around that and just being able to see and learn from that really just, um, ends up absorbing into who you are and how you practice as an anesthesiologist. So that was really, um, you know, just one of the many times you were, we were in situations. I mean, I can speak on so many being in any case with Andy Maslow was insane. And he just, you know, brought it down to such a level that you're like, wow, why am I freaking out about this? I mean, it's really simple. Um, and he just had that effect. And don't get me wrong, it's stressful in those moments and uh, depending on what the case is. Um, but especially Dr. Maslow, you know, he runs a thousand miles an hour. But, um, you know, for him to have that um, moment to have shared that with me and kind of got me to get to a place where I felt comfortable in those situations, um, was reassuring. And, you know, that's, I think that was the, uh, best part about being around the caliber of, uh, you know, all the anesthesiologists there. Awesome. I was actually just, uh, I was on call last night and we had an aortic dissection come in. So I was handing uh-huh. I was hanging out with Andy Maslow from like basically midnight to like 5am this morning. And I was like describing to my wife what it's like to be awake in an OR, like basically all night long. And I was like, it's pretty much like a casino where there's no windows and time is like this elusive thing. And like Andy Mazzo's running around, still trying to like lecture you at three in the morning. You're trying to absorb as much as possible. Um, but it's like, <laughs> it's like a very wild experience to go through. But yeah, you yeah. mentioned two really great people in our department. For sure. And like, I don't know if you had the opportunity to do stairs with Andy Maslow, but if ever there's like a dull moment, he does stairs in the back hallway. So um, you can definitely get a good quad workout in hand. Oh, that's amazing. So. He's a fit guy for how fast yeah. he runs. <laughs> uh, awesome. For sure. <laughs> um, so as long as I've known you, I feel like you've been into chronic pain. And was that something that you came into like or came out of medical school and sort of into residency with? Um, obviously, we know that you've done your fellowship in it, but sort of where along your career path did you think to yourself, chronic pain is where I want to ultimately find myself in and anesthesia is the ideal route to get me there? I had the unfair advantage of uh, both my parents being anesthesiologists and my dad is a chronic pain physician. And they've now since retired, but um, you know, being around that for such a long time, um, you know, I've 
just been exposed to it. Now, mind you, my parents told me right upon entering medical school, hey, don't do anesthesiology, go into surgery or something else, you know. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, it just ended up being anesthesiology that the, uh, the career I chose. But, um, you know, as a third and fourth year, I did away rotations in both anesthesiology and human art. And I just wanted to understand both aspects because I knew I wanted to go to chronic pain uh, once I ruled out some surgical specialties. And, um, you know, it turned out to be that anesthesiologists just had a better, um, you know, one fellowship match into chronic pain and then two um, just hand skills and procedural skills, which want, which I wanted to end up being, you know, more so of an interventionalist than just a traditional pain medicine doctor, whether it be medications or, um, non-interventional techniques. Um, so that kind of really like pushed me along that route. So, um, yeah, I think, I think I like even tailored, uh, how I ranked my anesthesiology program based on electives that would allow me to do, um, more chronic pain. So, um, you want to talk yeah. about some of those electives? Because I know you did like away rotations during your last year at Brown um, at a couple different places. Do you want to talk about how that sort of helped your decision making in terms of ranking places and also what you were expecting out of your career because of those experiences? Yeah, for sure. Um, so fortunately, when we um, when we started at Brown, we had an affiliation with uh, the Brig, um, Brigham Women's uh, Hospital. Um, so we had the opportunity to go through their, uh, rotate through their OB anesthesiology department along with a few other, um, institutions. But, um, that's when I just used that relationship we had to open up another door to get into their chronic pain department. Um, and for those of you who don't know, um, Brigham and Women's Hospital is probably one of the top, um, interventional chronic pain fellowships and even facilities in the country. Um, so being in a place like that, that was so robust and really, um, you know, on the forefront of some of the things happening at chronic pain, uh, was a great opportunity. Um, you know, and I got to see and meet a lot of specialists that were in the department and, uh, you know, really got me to understand what a intervent, like a heavy, busy, um, interventional program would look like. Um, so I can't speak too much on the fellowship because I didn't end up going there. Um, but, um, you know, it was a great place to learn. Uh, I still have contacts for those fellows that I worked with, um, you know, and I hope to see, continue to see them across the country um, through, um, you know, meetings and things like that. Uh, the other place I went to uh, was Carolina Pain Institute, which used to be a uh, primary site for Wake Forest University, but is no longer. The, um, the time where I went there was their last year where they're actually taking fellows from Wake Forest. And the really cool thing about that place was um, it was a private practice, basically, that had affiliations with a university. So their fellows got the opportunity to see what a private practice pain practice would look like. Um, and on top of that, they had one of the, you know, top researchers in the field of pain medicine, um, Leo Caporal, who was basically running his own research lab within the private practice um, and then continuing to publish some of the top research in our field. And, you know, that's a big deal in the fact that he wasn't backed by a, 
you know, huge uh, university. It wasn't university funded. It was all privately funded or industry sponsored. Um, so that was a great learning opportunity to be around, you know, Titans, I guess, in that industry. Um, you know, Richard Rauch, uh, Chris Gilmore, um, you know, James North. Uh, there are a lot of physicians over there, and those are just a few, but um, over at Carolina Pain Institute that really changed the game of pain medicine and even continue to influence the trajectory today. So, um, you know, and even, you know, I, I skipped on all the Brigham people because, you know, they're already so they carry the weight of Harvard behind their name. But, you know, you've got Chris Gilgan and Jason Yong that are doing phenomenal things um, in the space of pain medicine. So, um, you know, both of those opportunities were times where I could learn from, um, you know, other physicians, other practices and figure out how I wanted to mirror mine. Um, yeah, <laughs> this is an intermission. We're about halfway through the episode. Feel free to pause it, give yourself a mental break and come back to it later. If your commute's not over or you're really into the episode, feel free to keep pushing forward. But if you need to take a break here and reset yourself, go ahead, put the podcast down and come back to it at a later time. It does seem like most of the guests save their best for last. So you'll be sure to want to check out the rest of the podcast and the end of the episode to see what everyone has to say. Yeah, you can clearly tell that when you go to these places, you have like a big influence or you're influenced by other people. And when you say someone is a titan in a specialty, like what about them, about their careers or about their personalities drives you to sort of view them as this person who's like a leader in their field or like a titan in their field? Yeah. So, you know, for me, when I think of titans in the field, it doesn't necessarily mean who has, who's like the face of it, right? So like president of a society or things like that. Now, those are big, important things, but I think of more so who's been contributing to the field of pain medicine clinically and how has that affected practice? So for example, Chris Gilgan has been um, backing and a part of the development of uh, neurorestorative uh, stimulation, which is called reactivate, which basically stimulates a muscle in your body to um, rehabilitate and um, address back pain. And they have great data on it. Um, it's, you know, out there for interventional pain physicians to implant and help find patients and who fit the current model. And that's a huge, that's a game changer, you know, um, being able to contribute in that way. Um, you know, with Leo Caporal, you know, he has done a ton of studies on um, high frequency spinal cord stimulation. And then on top of that, he's done studies on how you could, you know, use that therapy on um, chronic abdominal pain, you know, or thoracic neuralgia or additional things that are outside of the norm of traditional stimulation. And, you know, those are just a few things what, of, of, that these individuals have done. And, you know, when you think about that and that they are pushing the field forward and, um, creating new opportunities for, um, clinicians such as myself to offer these therapies for patients and things like that, um, with justified research and um, background, like that's what I consider a Titan, you know, and um, yeah, and they're still doing good things. So <laughs> perfect. And I think like, if you look at like your resume and kind of your experiences, clearly research has been like a really 
big part of your career. Was it something that came natural to you, like just a process of writing and sort of being curious about how you can improve like a practice or like, where did that desire? Cause it's not normal to like pump out all of these papers, like that's <laughs> going above and beyond. And it shows like a big desire to want to do it. So one, where did that desire come from? And two, how did you stay so motivated throughout that process? Sure. Um, so yeah, I wish I could say I had this desire early on. Um, I actually remember as a med student, I worked under another big name in pain medicine, Norman Hardin, um, who was part of a lot of uh, early on studies in pain medicine and big contributor with the Budapest criteria with CRPS. And, you know, I remember going through his, going to his research lab, um, getting on some of the projects and just not liking it at all. <laughs> like, I was like, what am I doing here? Um, I distinctly remember working with a research associate on a Friday and I like, um, came in in like casual clothes and she was like, pulled me aside and was like, Hey, you can't come to work like this. Like you gotta <laughs> dress up. Um, and that was when I was like, I, I gotta get out of here. Like, this is not for me. Um, so yeah, I, it really didn't happen until I get to Brown, got to Brown. Um, I really wanted to get into research early on um, during my transitional year. And the opportunities weren't as much there. Um, they had a lot of red tape in terms of administration and the hospital and like getting clearance and things like that. But the moment I got to Brown, you know, um, Dr. De La Vera was all about getting research out there. And if you wanted to do something, you went and talked to him. Um, Dr. Kendall's been like tremendously helpful in the program during my time there. And I still collaborate with him today. I, I, I'm still working on some projects with Dr. Kendall and he's fortunate enough, or I'm fortunate enough for, uh, for him to respond back to me, even though I've been long gone. So, um, yeah, I just got to a place where I'm like, Hey, listen, like, the only way you're going to be relevant in um, whatever field you do after you leave um, training is through research or giving back. Um, now, I think a lot of people may have those interests and things like that. I think the challenge is going to be when you get out, um, balancing your personal life with professional and how you know much do you want to dedicate? Because you know there are times where you're not going to sleep as much because you're working on research or... Um, you know, you guys spend time with your family or uh, you guys spend time on your, you know, your practice, if you're building a practice, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, you just got to figure, you just got to figure out what's important to you and what do you want to do or what do you want to contribute and how much and kind of go with that. So um, yeah, the staying passionate on this is really just mainly because I want to be um, a part of the growth right now and we'll see how long that continues. Nice. Um, let's talk a little bit about your time in New York City and at Cornell. How did you ultimately decide, one, you wanted to move to New York City? Because at least from what I know, you don't have too much of an affiliation with New York City, right? That's your first time living there? No, I'd lived in New York before, okay. um, but very transient. And it was funny, it, the last time I was in New York City, I was like, I doubt I'm ever coming back here. Uh -huh. um, and for those of you who've lived in New York City, it's a great place to live. Um, some people, they're like, hey, this is it. And they got to get out. Um, and I was the exact same way I, I did my time and I thought I was going to get out, but, uh, you know, I, I just had such a great interview, <laughs> um, at Cornell. I like literally interviewed with the entire team and I was just talking to Dr. Galati and I was like, Hey, I want to come here. Um, 
And I basically told that to everyone else that I was interviewing with and I ended up going. So, um, and it was funny because at the time my, you know, I was talking to my now wife and I was like, Hey, like, you know, it's going to be a total change of pace from Rhode Island, but I think New York's going to be it. Um, and she could just tell from the energy from that interview and how I'd handled all my prior interviews that that was probably going to be a contender. So, yeah. What was, what was the biggest draw? What made you like so excited? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think you can train to be a interventional pain physician anywhere. And a lot of times you learn all these skills down the road and, um, but it's the people who you're with and who you click with. And just because I clicked with some people doesn't make it the best place that everyone should go. It's just, you want to go to a place that everyone kind of connects with you and kind of will support your goals. It was like the same thing with Brown, you know, like I wanted to go to a place to get from A to B and who would help me get there from A to B, you know, um, I wanted to do research, but I wasn't trying, that wasn't everything I wanted to get out of it. I needed to, you know, I knew I wanted to start a practice. I knew I wanted to be involved with industry and get involved, um, with society and like, where would that be? And where could I get access to all these things, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it just turned out to be Cornell. Um, and yeah, (laughs) Very cool. Um, I think a lot of people when they're sort of looking for residencies or looking for fellowships will consider a lot of big cities like Los Angeles, New York City, Boston. One, because there's so many programs like in density there. And two, because it's a fun time to try something new. Um, And so for your wife or even for you, what were some of the biggest transitions of like moving to New York City and kind of adjusting to life in New York City? That one you weren't expecting or that like went easier or harder than you expected? Uh-huh. So um, we got to New York City or we secured uh, or we got a lease um, during COVID prices. So we really got a steal. Like the place where we were living and how we were living was um, probably not what normal people who live in New York City are still paying right now. Um, so well, I think that you, really... Where were you? Where were you in New York City? So we were in East Village. Okay. Yeah. So... Um, you know, and it was a really nice, like brand new, like building mid rise, like on a busy street, like we got access to everything. Um, so I think stuff like that doesn't happen all the time. <laughs> um, you know, Cornell is really good about giving you housing, um, especially if you're like fellows, like they'll do a good job about securing those housing for you. Um, but I can't really speak on it because I didn't want that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, you know, had it not been like that and had I not prioritized um, the programs I wanted to go to, I don't know if New York City would have been in the running. You know, I had a list of programs that I deemed, you know, highly interventional and would get me the skills and foundation that I would need um, to progress. And that was one of the main reasons I chose it. So, cool. cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the last little bit I want to focus on is kind of where your career is now, which is what, from my understanding, focusing on opening up a practice with your brother. Is that right? Yeah. So actually we have a third partner. Um, okay. one of, uh, one of my friends who actually met, uh, during our transitional year in California and somehow got him to move out to the Midwest <laughs> Nice with all of us. So, yeah. 
Yeah. Take me through some of like the current steps that you're in and kind of like where you see yourself like a month from now, three months from now, or, you know, as we get into 2023, like what are your goals for this practice or what are you trying to build it up to? Yeah. So where am I? So I'll start with, I'll start step by step. So where am I right now? So we are one month in, Mm -hmm. um, we started seeing patients November 1st. Um, we were very fortunate that we've had a relatively busy, um, day to day. Um, I think like, where do we see ourselves in the future? Uh, you know, we are highly interventional. We want to move into an ambulatory surgery center space and to the hospital, like doing larger procedures. Um, and just being in a place where we are known as, um, you know, reliable referrals and, um, individuals who can take care of their patients from A to Z, um, avoiding surgery. Um, you know, our trajectory is pretty, like pretty high. We have lofty goals. Um, I think this happens all the time. Um, especially with millennials, they want to have like, you know, everything and try to t- conquer the world and things like that. And, you know, I think, um, I think that's like very important, just having that drive. And I've always had that. And I'm fortunate enough to have partners that have that similar drive. And I think it's a really difficult road alone. Um, and I think having support, I'm very fortunate to have the support I have, you know, moving forward with that. So, yeah. What's the name, what's the name of your practice? So our practice is called Pain Zero. Um, and then we actually set up a nonprofit um, that works in concert with it that's called Pain Labs. So we are actually mirroring a lot of stuff on how certain private practices are doing, doing across the country in terms of incorporating research into their clinical practice. So I can actually start, you know, working on some of those things that I was doing um, as a resident and continuing to do um, as a practicing clinician out in the real world. So. <laughs> Did you anticipate that you were going to keep up with that? Or is that something you kind of stumbled into as you learned about private practice models? Yeah. So I, uh, that's, you know, when I was at Carolina Pain Institute, uh, Leo Caporal does a, uh, consulting for new practices and he actually builds this into their practice. So if you're interested in doing this and don't know uh, how to start or where to start, um, I think that's a huge resource resource. Um, you know, on top of that, like having that kind of connection is great, but, you know, being over at Wild Cornell, um, you know, we have faculty that can support those endeavors too. Um, you know, Dr. Goliath has been really good about connecting his fellows with whomever and, um, whatever you need to help succeed because, you know, you've only got a year of fellowship and he wants you to be successful. And, um, as long as you know what to ask for, you know, and you know what you're looking for. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And how do you get patients? Like what is your current referral method? Yeah. So, uh, one of our specialties, just being fortunate enough to train at uh, Cornell, uh, we worked at Sloan Kettering, which is the cancer center, and then Hospital for Special Surgery, and then Cornell. So Sloan Kettering is a number two cancer hospital in the country. Um, so having that behind your resume is helpful. And then HSS is the number one orthopedic hospital in the country. So, you know, you've effectively trained in one of the top institutions for orthopedics and cancer. Um, and guess what most of the pain is 
it's orthopedic or cancer, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, yeah. um, you know, that alone opens a tremendous amount of doors and, uh, you know, being able to know what you're comfortable with and what your practice wants to look like. Um, you know, I, we just solicited, um, meetings with hospital systems, um, groups, um, targeting the larger groups first, and then going from there, um, in terms of what we do, where's our skill set? how do we differ from the competition? Um, granted we're new people. Um, I think the biggest thing is just, uh, being hungry for it because like, like I said, life's pretty busy, man. Like you gotta be mm -hmm. out there, like going to meetings, talking to people, getting your face out there. And a lot of times once, um, you know, older physicians get settled, I can totally see it. You can just be like, you know what? I'm good. I got a great amount of patients. I've got a good name out there. Um, I don't need to like spend my Friday nights going out and meeting and schmoozing and talking with potential referral sources, or mm -hmm. I don't need to spend a weekend going to a seminar and doing talks and things like that. Um, because you know, I'm good, you know, mm -hmm. and yeah, that that's just, everyone's just got their barometer of like where they want to be. So yeah. Awesome. All right. Last question while we have a few minutes left, um, walk me through one of your like most ideal days as an interventional pain physician. Like what is what you see, <laughs> how you start your day and kind of like what you find most rewarding in your days? Yeah. So uh, I can just give you an example. I just saw a patient the other day. Um, so this patient had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and she was on high dose narcotics, um, short acting and long, long acting. And it just felt like she had the kitchen sink thrown at her. Um, and I came in, we were talking and she was talking about her symptoms and um, she was like, oh, I have early stainless. And I was like, yeah, I know, I know what that is. Like, tell me more about it. Like, are you having mast cell activation? Um, what exactly about EDS has been bothering you? And she was floored. Like she couldn't even believe it that I knew exactly what she was talking about. And, um, I was familiar with treating it and I was familiar with her symptoms and she was just in tears the whole time. Um, I was, I was actually getting emotional too, because I, you know, you have this person who spent their whole life not knowing mm -hmm. what to do and the physicians mm -hmm. not knowing how to treat it appropriately. And, right. you know, you come along and you're like, wow, this was easy. You know, I learned this in my training yeah. and, uh, it was just crazy. And then we had, <laughs> it's crazy. And then right after that, I had another patient and we're looking through her MRI and I was like, um, you know, this, uh, your, your spinal cord looks a little tight in here. Have you had problems walking long distances? And, and uh, do you feel like you have to sit and take a break? And she started getting in tears as well because she was like, that's exactly what I've been going through. You know, she had spinal stenosis. And she was about to go to Disneyland with her family and her grandbabies. And she was like, what am I supposed to do here? You know, like, how am I going to get through this? Um, you know, Disneyland's supposed to be a fun place and I can't even walk, you know? So um, being in a place where you can one, identify what patients are going through and offer them resources and treatments for that. Um, you know, I think that's tremendous. And I get, you know, <laughs> This early on in my career, I get tremendous joy um, from that and just being able to help people. And, um, you know, I think that's why we're all in this, at least to start when it all happens, when it's all new, you know, it's not a job. It's like more so like, oh my gosh, I'm 
taking care of this person, you know, and I'm yeah. affecting yeah. their, their life and their trajectory. So, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. man. Those are two really good <laughs> stories. Um, really heartwarming stories. I think everything you've kind of talked about today is very inspirational for anyone who wants to go into pain um, and who has that drive and energy. So thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Kenny. Of course. All right, man, stay in touch, be well, and hopefully I'll talk to you soon. All right. Cool. All right. See you. Ty. See you. Thanks for listening to Behind the Drapes. If you like what you hear, check out the podcast homepage where you can check out other episodes that have been released and make sure you hit the subscribe button so you get all the new episodes to your homepage as they drop. Also, if you like the educational stuff, check out the Instagram page and the TikTok page, Keywords by Kenny, and also the website, keywordsxkenny.com to see some more full in-depth explanations for keyword topics.